Hey folks, welcome to Your Basket is Empty. We are equal parts consulting and content. On the consulting side, we work with digital agencies to help them grow and scale by offering fractional director services. On the content front, our mission is to inform, inspire, and entertain the modern commerce community. We do this with a newsletter that includes interviews with original e-com thinkers, the week's most interesting direct-to-consumer news, a jobs board, an event listing page, and a playlist. We also host events and the podcast that you're listening to right now. I'd highly recommend you go and check us out at yourbasketisempty.com. On this special 100th episode, Will and I discuss Dollar Shave Club moving to Shopify and being put up for sale, how Hello Bello got into trouble, Indonesia banning TikTok shop, why Wiggle might get bought, Nike's new D2C gym equipment brand, Apple's AI announcement, and Tala getting into outwear. This episode is brought to you by our friends at OmniSend, your myth busters for Black Friday email marketing. How many times have you heard October is already too late for Black Friday or SMS marketing and Black Friday don't mix? What if I told you these are all myths? The truth is if you're using OmniSend, you're already one step ahead of the Black Friday game. OmniSend's platform empowers 100,000 e-commerce brands to cut through the noise with laser focused email and SMS campaigns that convert like crazy. Think you're late to the Black Friday party, OmniSend's pre-made Black Friday templates and pre-built automation workflows will help you make last minute campaign changes a breeze. It's never too late to catch the wave with OmniSend. Let's talk ROI. Last year, OmniSend users shattered the myth of low email ROI by clocking in an average of $72 for every dollar spend. That's double the industry average of $36. And those aren't just numbers. They're your ticket to a stress-free Black Friday slash Cyber Monday weekend. But what if you hit a snag? OmniSend's award-winning support team has got you covered, answering your questions in under five minutes. Yep, even on Black Friday and Cyber Monday, they're on it. So this Black Friday, don't get trapped by myths. Experience the power of email and SMS marketing that actually delivers with OmniSend. Discover more at getomnisend.com slash empty. Use promo code yourbasketisempty and get 30% off your first three months with OmniSend. Enjoy the episode. Will, welcome to the pod. How are you? I'm good, mate. How are you? I'm good. We were, we were chatting just before we jumped on air. You are the hundredth episode of your Basket is Empty podcast. Yes. Cheers, cheers. <laughs> what do I win? <laughs> what do you win? I've I've been thinking about getting some merch. So once I get some merch, maybe you can you can you can take that on. It's funny. So I'm writing up a blog post for the agency guys, the Greben guys out of Sweden, and we're talking about the pod. And I had to. I was talking about the first episode and like how did it start and all that sort of stuff. I went back and listened to the first episode. And it was myself and Priya Downs talking about Nudea. And I recorded it in the We Make Websites office because I used to do all the podcasts live. And Pre is amazing, but man, I don't really know what I'm doing. The sound quality is just so bad because I just had these shitty mics in this like very echoey broom. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's nice to see that it's become slightly more professional 99 episodes later. Nice. I'm going to go check that out. Love prayer. It's good. It's, it's worth a listen. It's, it's quite good. And, it, you know, the other thing that was funny, I remember, because I know a little my way around GarageBand and like editing a little bit, and I recorded the episode and it was like an hour long and I wanted to bring it back down to like half an hour. And I thought, oh, that's easy. I'll just like chop out half an hour, 30 minutes worth of like talking. It's so bloody hard, like <laughs> editing. From that day onwards, I said, that's it. I'm, it's going to be it's going to be a live podcast. There is no editing. This does not happen. <laughs> now I've got a team that helped me out, so it's much easier. But like, yeah. So from that day forth, episode two onwards, it was like, sorry, 
guest, but there is no editing here. If you if you muck up, <laughs> it's going in. It's how we're working. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, we shall get on to the week or a couple of weeks most interesting e-com and e-com adjacent news. There are some juicy, hot topics that we're going to discuss in this session, and you're going to kick us off with the Dollar Shave Club. Yeah. I think Dollar Shave Club is one of those like D2C success stories that everybody kind of aspires and looks up to. They got sold for a billion dollars, which is just an insane amount of uh, shaving razors. And they had their own <laughs> <laughs> custom tech stack, as most of these kind of big, large billion dollar D2C brands do. But they moved away and they moved the first time into the Shopify ecosystem, which I think is really interesting. Obviously, like that plays into the Shopify kind of enterprise kind of ICP that they're going after. In terms of the tech stack, they're using things like Gorgeous and Clavio and Order Groove to kind of power all of that. And yeah, and then they're moving as well. They're selling. So Unilever is selling Dollar Shave Club out as well. What came first? The tech stack move or the sale? It's the well, I mean it's the it's the classic e-commerce chicken and egg you know, question. I'm going to wager that, well, they may have happened in, in in unison to some degree. I mean, there's a couple of things going on. One, them moving to Shopify is an interesting news story unto itself, right? Like, and I, I totally agree. I think it plays perfectly into Shopify's new sort of foray into the enterprise space. It's a great, it's a great case study, right? Like Shopify, I love that. And I'm sure they'll be talking more about it. But the secondary and separate thing is the and we talked about it before we, we we jumped on air. Like big conglomerates buying these like direct consumer brands and it not working very well. I saw someone on uh, LinkedIn posted about this like last week, and they sort of suggested that one of the reasons was that the big CPG companies don't really understand the why of the direct consumer. So there's a, a lot of assumptions built into it. they buy this thing. It's on this incredible you know hockey stick growth curve, and we're just gonna like you know, pump it full of our like genius marketing and supply chain and boom, it's it's going to go nuts. And I suppose like that does make sense from a theoretical perspective, but maybe it just doesn't play out in, in reality. Also, I think to give, obviously, there's very smart people at these big CPG companies, they're not idiots, right? The market has totally changed since then, which they wouldn't have probably forecast in their modeling and, you know, the investment thesis that they were going for, right? Like this was one of those kind of like, the first big direct consumer acquisition things, you know, in the last 15 years. So it's, there's bound to be some casualties. I think probably what's more interesting is some of these more recent examples, like the Allbirds, you know, IPOing and that kind of like turning to shit. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that they're moving to Shopify and it's even more interesting that they're trying to offload it, you know, probably marking it down as a bad investment, I assume. I wonder if it's, it makes it easier to sell, you know, cause there's no kind of, the debt, I suppose the tech debt, that's the technical term, right? The tech debt is less <laughs> when it's on Shopify. It's an interesting question. And somebody was talking about this the other day. There was a, I think it may have been our mate Jordan, the prolific e-com or e-com LinkedIn influencer that he is becoming very rapidly, that some brands prefer to have the tech in-house because of that very reason. Like when they go to sell or there's some sort of M&A activity that it's actually the opposite, that like having the the homegrown inbuilt tech is better. I would assume what you just suggested would make more sense to me because it's like, why in God's name would we have this you know, this stuff in-house, you use SaaS. Um, so yeah, I, I'd be curious, maybe listeners can write in and tell us where we're getting it right and where we're getting it wrong. But I would assume that 
going to Shopify would make the sale easier, but I could be totally wrong. I'm not sure. Who knows? It's an impressive company either way. A million subscribers, is it? No, more than that, isn't it? It's got to be more than that, yeah. I mean, revolutionized shaving, which is no mean feat. The other thing you wanted to talk about, well, there's a couple of things, but the Hello Bello have gone bankrupt. Tell me about it. Yeah, Kristen Bell, who played Anna in Frozen and Veronica Mars, and Dax uh, Shepard. They set up their D2C diaper nappy brand, Hello Bello, that's gone bankrupt. I think there's been a series of different things that have, that have changed, such as you know COVID uh, played a massive part on the manufacturing process. They only had kind of one third-party manufacturer, and their whole spiel was that they were affordable diapers, and they increased the price, I think it was 18% or something. So they then couldn't kind of pass that on. <laughs> it's a lot, yeah. But instead of looking for a new supplier, they tried to make their own warehouse, launch their own warehouse. This took them too many years to kind of build and, and get out there. And then when they did finally get there, it actually didn't save them that much money. And so they filed for bankruptcy, which is sad, but it is a really interesting story kind of looking at that timeline and, and seeing where all those different decisions have, have kind of impacted the, the overall outcome of this. Very interesting story. Like, I suppose going in, what you know, maybe, well, it's not a mistake, right? But like learning one is if you're going in with a very affordable price point, that's part of your branding. You've got to be careful that, you know, exogenous market shocks don't affect <laughs> that and you have to like rework it. I, I would, I mean, like being in the boardroom or wherever, you know, the room where they were doing these strategy sessions is trying to figure out how they navigate this. I'm sure that may have come onto the table, right? Of like, well, let's reposition ourselves as not being affordable so we can pass on a cost. 18% increase though, you're going to have to lump some of that no matter what you do, right? Yeah. So that's really fucking difficult. I'm very curious about the idea and sort of thought process around bringing more of that supply chain in-house. That that seems slightly bizarre to me for such a ubiquitous commodity. It feels like that wouldn't be a good idea. I suppose when you're in the like supply chain quagmire and we're going to talk about wiggle in a bit and that's probably you know those guys would probably have some battle scars as well but maybe within that environment yeah doing it yourself makes way more sense i would have thought they would have like realized that that whole thing would have got ungunked at some point though like the world will ungunk itself from a supply chain perspective yeah well i don't know the the article i was looking at was they they only had one supplier they didn't look around where it's like, you know, other places, other brands, I think it was comparing somewhat like Walmart and their own brand nappies, their increase only went up to like 10%. So it just like as the market forces changed, they just weren't able to kind of keep up. But I think nappies and diapers, historically in e-commerce, you, you've seen about diapers.com, right? And the story there. No, what was that? Diapers.com. Okay. Originally 1-800-diapers.com, 2005 selling diapers online. Amazon tried to buy them out. They said no. And so Amazon offered free diapers to every new parent and then eventually bought Ouch. them anyway. Yeah. I'm sure that's the story. I'll double check that. But yeah, it was a it was a hard move. So like diapers on the internet, man, I've got a bad rap. But yeah, this whole like celebrity brand thing, I, I think it's really hard to scale up, right? Like it's very easy to get 
hundreds of thousands of subscribers to whatever product you're selling as a celebrity. But actually, when you when you try and turn that into a long-term business model, that's that's really difficult. Totally. That's, that's a really interesting point. I mean, yeah, firstly, to the Amazon thing, like anyone that doesn't think that Amazon engage in predatory sort of behavior, I mean, there's a great example. I'm sure that's part of Alina Khan's you know, FTC suit, I would have thought, the 1-800-diapers.com debacle. But yeah, it's a really interesting concept. And I saw something recently about like celebrity-led brands. Yeah, their retention strategy is difficult. I think it's a classic example of like, you know, what's more important, the chicken or the egg, the product or the marketing, right? And if the product is not, and the consumer experience, right, which I I include in the product, right? Like the product has to be shit hot, the experience has to be shit hot. Otherwise, all you're going to do, you've got this shit hot marketing, which is a zillion, you know, Instagram followers all going to buy the first one and then, nothing happens from there. And I suppose this is probably a good example where that acquisition strategy ultimately like can't be for the long term, right? If you can't get the diapers to the people or you're increasing the price by 18% or you're changing the brand or whatever it is, you know, like, you know, the, the, the retention behind it just wasn't there probably. I'm always, I'm always impressed with like celebrities that can kind of make it work because you'd think it's easier than what it is given you know, the just breadth of influence they've got. But it's obviously not that that easy. Yeah. So like I said, it has to, the product has to be right. There's obviously elements of that, that decision-making, like do we outsource this? Do we just white-label it? Like, yeah. You know, you see like Mr. Beast has got it right. I don't know who is on his team, but they are crushing it. Everything they produce, they sell out. Yeah, and I think that there's probably an element, again, you know, you've got smart people around you, so that obviously helps. But there must be a way to tap into potential products where you can reduce some of that risk, right? So I don't, I don't know exactly off the top of my head what he does, but I know the Logan Paul drink that, I don't know, kids are getting cancer from it or whatever it is, something pretty bad. But like a drink is probably an, an interesting thing where it's replenishable much quicker, maybe, well, maybe not much quicker than a diaper. You'd say that the diaper has got that kind of like natural subscription element kind of been built into it. So it's probably not a bad like product to be focusing on. But what if the babies get rashes? You know, it's the sort of thing where like any kind of potential issue on the product is going to become amplified because of the nature of it, right? Yeah, it's a highly regulated industry, right? The subscription nappy thing, it doesn't really work because when you run out, like you run out, you have to you have to go to the shop and get them. It's that you can't just be like, oh, it's all right. Just wait two more days. Subscriptions due. I've got my DPD notification. It's on its way. Like you, it has to be readily available. So I we never subscribed um, to nappies, but I think it's a great great example where brands apply this blanket approach to subscription and if you think that it's a high frequency product then subscription works perfectly i've unsubscribed to so many things because subscriptions fail to understand the nuance of my life and you've made a great you know point there right like I don't know, the little one has diarrhea for a week and you use up more nappies. How in God's name is Recharge going to figure that out, right? Like, so it's it's a really difficult thing. And I think the tech is really good, like the Rechargers, the bowls, the sub- Summaries, anyone who's powering the kind of like subscription, they do a really good job, but they are inhibited by the nuance of the world and real life, right? And that's the difficult thing, you know? I think food boxes kind of come into that category as well. I know we're sort of slightly digressing on subscription here, but same concept where you get those food boxes in and my sister's 
she used to be a gusto you know subscriber or whatever they they can't take into account the nuance of your life right so you get this subscription that you're cooking for a week and then your friend says, hey, I want to go out for dinner on Thursday and then you can't be fucked cooking and you order a deliver on Friday. You've now had two meals within that weekly period where you're not using the stuff, right? And so it can't keep up with the nuance of like humans. Basically. Humans are the problem, I suppose. Humans and babies are the problem. I would, if somebody invented an AI app that looked at my phone constantly and was like, you're out for dinner, you're going out drinking tonight, so you're probably going to get a kebab on the way home, and therefore you don't need meals next week. You only need four or whatever. I, I would allow that kind of intrusion into my life just to get the, the yeah, accuracy on interesting. But it still requires you to be inputting that stuff into the calendar, right? So I think that there's an element. That's a really interesting But I mean, that's getting into like her territory, right? The real proper like human assistant, which I'm assuming that's where these things are going. All right. I know we want to crack on. You had a final thing you want to talk about, and that was TikTok in Indonesia, I believe. Yeah. TikTok shop, the e-com kind of social media side to TikTok. They obviously, so they launched into Indonesia originally to kind of test that market and make sure it's worthwhile kind of doing the e-com side of their business. They then use that as a blueprint to kind of launch into other markets, such as UK and US. But the Indonesian government have put a blanket ban on TikTok shop. Well, it's across all social media e-com. Um, so I find that really interesting uh, in terms of like their reasoning was that they want to make sure it's fair and just competition for, uh, uh, for other e-com brands and also to protect that user data. So, yeah, it would be interesting to see where this goes next. Are there, like, local domestic e-com players that they're trying to protect? Is, th- is that the deal? So I, I think that's what, what is going on, but they are, as so ByteDance, who owns TikTok, they say that the way that they're going to combat this is they're going to try and build either a new app or a partner with local companies to make this more of a reality. Yeah, they're trying to like get into the kind of supply chain game and in which case you can partner with people very similar to Amazon, right? Like you can fulfill by Amazon, you know, so you can do the stuff behind the scenes, which is interesting. And I suppose, I don't know, Indonesian government probably not as worried about that or maybe they're trying to protect Indonesian supply chain like operators, I don't know. Yeah, maybe they're worried about the whole thing. Uh, You know, it, it probably pays into like the wider economic system as well. Like- how is that affecting offline retail? That's a very good point. I wonder what the geopolitical implications are. Maybe there's a, a political element to it as well, right? They don't want to get too close to the CCP or at least let them influence their country as much as what they, they might be. There's a lot of tinfoil hat conspiracies around like user data as well, right? Like, yeah, I think it's interesting to only quote from one of the execs from TikTok. They said that if they separate the shop element from the TikTok app in Indonesia, then they may be put in to a position where they're forced to do that in the US as well, which would be really interesting if that happens. So my favorite conspiracy theory about TikTok, and you might have heard this, I don't know if this is, well, pretty sure it's not true, but there are two versions of TikTok. So in China, the TikTok is still kind of addictive and he's still scrolling, but it teaches all the kids like maths and physics and like, it's all educational. And then they're like, well, we'll just give that version of our app to our enemies 
and make it so that everybody that looks at it is doing stupid dances and like it makes breeds a generation of stupid people rather than oh my god people are, that is that's wicked. my i mean if that's true take take the world man that's clever well, yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Clever. <laughs> One could assume, though, there is truth to that because the algorithm is the algorithm, right? And so the algorithm obviously serves you stuff and it suggests stuff, but it feeds off your preferences. So therefore, if you love TikTok dances as opposed to like <laughs> learning about quantum physics, you're going to tell it what you want. So therefore, it's going to push back what you want, right? So maybe they don't, it isn't a conspiracy theory. Maybe people in China are just smarter and therefore that they get to the content. And us Westerners are just these blobs of like content consumption, right? Okay, I'm going to round it out. We've got a few minutes left. I'm going to, I, I'm, as I said before we jumped on, I'm being slightly lazy and I'm piggybacking off of some of the things I talked about in the newsletter last week. So the first one being Wiggle, are potentially going kaput. So for those that don't know Wiggle, they are a one-stop shop for all things cycling and outdoors. I mean, I suppose they would compete with like Amazon and stuff like that. They're a massive, like huge catalog of like everything to do with cycling outdoor stuff. And you can buy like it, it, like components on there. You can buy accessories, you can buy bikes, you can buy kind of everything. And it, they're facing potential insolvency because one of their shareholders has pulled out of an investment that would have kept the lights on. The suggestion is they not dissimilar to what were they called the diaper brand? Hello Bello, something like that. Yeah. Probably had a hard time with supply chain issues. Which I definitely experienced. I used to be a Wiggle customer, although I had some pretty bad user experiences or customer experiences and I totally don't use them anymore. Big shout out to Sigma Sports. That's who I use for all my cycling stuff. They're great. Yeah, I think maybe they got caught up in the supply chain gunk, people wanting stuff, it taking ages retention became a real problem because they were letting people down, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But they also have a $112 million loss that they made last year. Not sure if that's all due to pissed off customers. So yeah, firstly, for me, this was interesting. What do you think about it? But I agree on the whole, like, you can't now blame slow transportation and shipping on COVID anymore. Like, that was how people were getting away with running drop shipping brands and, and being like, Oh, hey, it's going to take us 12 weeks because of COVID. Like, no, taking 12 weeks because you're drop shipping. But I think, yeah, it's, it's, you can't use that as an excuse anymore. We're, um, we're over that. Yeah. I think I was also in, intrigued by their funding structure. So there was some sort of PE firm involvement. And I thought, mm, they probably don't care about customer service. So therefore, it's all about margin, 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 margin. And has that impacted their ability to serve the market? I looked at Sigma Sport and they have a relatively big stake from a PE firm. So maybe it's not the funding structure. Anyway, Viva La Sigma Sport. That's all I can say. Other thing I touched on in the newsletter, which I thought was interesting. I'd love to get your take on it. So Nike have announced a new gym equipment brand. I think it's like a separate category brand, however they refer to it, called Nike Strength. And so it's all about like at-home fitness equipment. I think the tagline is elevate individual athletes' fitness journey. So barbells, dumbbells, bumper plates, kettlebells, benches, squat rats, etc. It's all powered by Shopify. What do you think about this first off? Like, do you think it's good news for Shopify? What do you think Nike are doing about it? Or why are they doing this? Yeah, I think it's great news for Shopify. Again, this plays into their enterprise, ICP, all that kind of stuff. Are they kind of, is it their own D2C channel? What, how does that work? Uh, yeah, so I don't, yeah. my If you go to the store, it's a separate thing. I don't know what the URL is. So yeah, it's their own D2C channel. 
I didn't get the sense, which I thought actually was a better play that may have been a B2B thing. So they were supplying gyms and stuff like that. I think it's all at home. Okay. So it is purely direct consumer. But I just thought that market seems to be losing juice. Like who the fuck wants to be in their house like doing stuff anymore like that? Like, And interestingly, it came out at a very similar time when Lululemon have announced the shutting down of their Mirror product. I think, they, I think it was an acquisition, but it's basically a Mirror that's got like a gym instructor in the Mirror. So it doubles as a Mirror and then it's like a virtual gym instructor. I, my sense is like we experienced two and a bit years of being locked down and that's when this stuff made sense. But... I don't want to be in my home anymore. I want to be out and about, like interacting with people and like maybe winter, like, but that's a seasonal thing. I don't know. I mean, if that's their play, the long term is let's create a small catalog of products that maybe they can almost dropship farm out, but let's create a D2C catalog. Let's see what the response is. And then if it's good, scrap that, shut that down. And then let's put all of our products into the D2C. If that's their play, it's a very clever way of testing the market. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you, man. Like, I don't want to be at home anymore. We're, we've been locked down, but <laughs> maybe it's a maybe it's a cost of living thing. Yeah, I mean, it would be a more cost-effective thing. And you, you make a great point. Like, ultimately, direct consumer. I think now I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Like, it's a great go-to-market like strategy, right? Test it out. I would have thought though, a brand like Nike would have enough D 2 C GTM data already. Like, they've done loads of go-to-market direct consumer stuff, right? There, there was a whole thing where they, it was during lockdown, I think. They, remember they were like really reevaluating or shutting down their partnerships with like the big footlockers and all of their kind of distribution partners. And they were like bringing everything in-house. They were going much more direct to consumer. I think they redid that though, actually, which is, is even more interesting. They then, I'm sure I saw an article where they had gone more direct to consumer first. So they'd sort of like reevaluated all their distribution partner like networks and kind of strategy. They brought everything more in-house and then realized, oh shit, actually footlockers are good for whatever reason. Let's go back out and re-engage that kind of partner network. And now they're doing this. Look, I don't know what Nike's doing. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. Okay, final couple of stories from me. This one's right up your alley because you're my go-to AI guy. So a Apple have announced a flurry of like AI kind of like investment and activity sort of according to Bloomberg, they're going to be spending a billion a year developing AI tools and services. And these are going to start to filter through to things like Siri, iMessage, Apple Music, Pages, Kino. I mean, it's really interesting. What do you think? What do you reckon is the, the AI expert in this room? Again, if it helps me manage my subscriptions and like... Sorts out my purchasing behavior. Yeah, well up for it. I think it'll be very interesting to see how things like the Google Pixel combats this. Google Pixel's already got like an element of AI embedded into it. It's like images and stuff. Like you take a photograph and if somebody's looking the wrong way, you can automatically kind of fix that. And so I think, yeah. Is, is it that thing of like Apple are just releasing a feature that Android have had for Yes, already? Is that going to be what it's going to be? Or is it actually going to be uh, like, a, like a game changer? Like as an avid Android fan, if they release something with AI that is outstanding, I would, I'd convert for something like that, yeah. 
I saw an ad for it the other day. I think it was the Google Pixel phone. And the ad suggested that the AI was great. If you look into the camera, don't smile. You can then turn your face into a smile. And I was thinking, are you for real? Like, just fucking smile. It's not that big a deal. Like, how is smiling for a photo a really difficult thing to do? I just thought this is the most bizarre use case of AI I've ever heard. So that's one thing. Two, I wonder with Apple, I, I do think they're quite good at, and I saw someone talk about this, they're, they're quite good at like just waiting and sort of seeing everything, letting the dust settle and then moving and then getting into whatever it is. And I think, yeah, whatever they do is probably going to be very good I suppose we, I can't remember if we talked about it, but the Google glasses is, or the eye, whatever they call it, the eye goggles or whatever, like that's probably an interesting one where I personally can't see it working. I just don't necessarily buy into that particular type of technology, but they did it, right? They, they sat back, they waited, and then they released and, you know, they, they're very careful and methodical about them. So I, I assume that that careful, methodical approach is being applied here. Right, final story, Tala Outwear, Grace Beverly's Athleisure brand. Now, I didn't quite uh, know, but they've already gotten into outwear. So they do puffers and beanies and scarves, and the new pieces are this reversible quilted jacket and reversible gilet. What are your initial thoughts from Tala announcing new outwear or getting into outwear? Great. I think it's the perfect time of year. <laughs> the massive jumpers. But yeah, I think great. Like if, you, if you're not moving forward, you're, you're going backwards, right? You can't just stand still. Yeah. I mean, I'm having a look as well. I think they're really, really trendy, kind of, they look cool. They're definitely the type of stuff that my partner would wear. Yeah, nice, nice. That's always a good litmus test. I I think that they, I was intrigued though, and I think this is one of their, their propositions is that they remain at a reasonable price point. But I thought that was interesting because the, the, the vibe I get is a bit more accessible luxury. It feels like it should be more expensive and I'm, I kind of question the price point a little bit. I wonder, is there two things going on? One, they're either eating into their own margin, which isn't a good idea, and I don't think they are. Two, I'm like, how sustainable is all this stuff? If it's cheap, then it's cheap to make, right? So I, I don't know. I feel like maybe, I don't know if they've got an issue around it, but that was definitely something that struck me. It's like, this seems and should be more expensive than what it is. But what do you think about that? I think I think the price point is about bang on. I'm looking at the... I'm looking at the long puffer jacket. You know the ones that go down to your ankles that look really cozy. One nine nine. I think great, perfect price oh, point. Okay, that is the more expensive. Yeah. Okay, I think I saw something that was cheaper. Yeah, two hundred pounds. Yeah, that probably makes sense. I don't know though. That feels like a, like a two eighty one. Like the vibe. I don't know. It feels like it should be more expensive. Yeah, it's it, like when you look at other brands, that that is more. You know, you're talking four hundred for some of these. But you know, I'm looking also looking. They've made it's hundred percent. Recycle polyester. It's very obvious that they're they're making a point of being like oh, more kind of aware. It is made in Vietnam, but it's all kind of audited for worker health and safety and all that kind of stuff. So maybe that's where that's at. But I yeah, I think price point looks about right. I do think it's an interesting concept, and I think I'm a avid cycler. And there's a brand called Panama Studios, and they've done this really, really well. They've kind of like transitioned into like other stuff outwear, I suppose, or they call it like the casual collection or whatever. And I think it's a really interesting move from like a athleisure or a sports brand to kind of get into a new category. I think them doing collabs with other people is also kind of an interesting move, like sort of slightly going sideways. And you're obviously I assume the strategy there is that you want to own more of the consumer's wardrobe, right? Like you want to go beyond 
them being in the workout outfit in the morning. You want to own them into the, you know, the lunchtime, the afternoon and the evening. So it feels like a, I suppose the other option is them to get like into supplements and stuff like that. I feel like that may have been on the table, but that to me would have been a bit weird, I suppose. Yeah, I think you have to have, so they've got, from what I've seen, they've got really strong brand affinity with their customers, right? Or their customers have brand affinity with them. And so, yeah, it makes sense when you launch a new product that you're going to sell quite quickly. When it's a different vertical, like supplements or food and drink, I think that's a different ballgame altogether, right? You don't, that's a different type of brand affinity. You almost have to start again from scratch. But pivoting from from what they're doing to outerwear makes total sense. It's interesting. I know you're a hooligan. Didn't Huel try and do it? They were getting into like shorts and it was like workout gear. It was like, you know, I don't know if they went as far as like, you know, tights and like workout shorts and stuff like that, but they definitely went further into more sportswear. Yeah, and they've got kids wear and stuff and jeans and all sorts. I got the free shirts and then was like, I need to buy some more of these because they're cool. So I have bought more. But yeah, they've got the... I, this, I'm just having a look at the site. I didn't realize how much they did. Beanies and caps. Interesting. I didn't know they did jeans. Yeah, right. Okay. Maybe it's more successful. Okay. I think I'm going to write about this in the newsletter. There you go. They're doing it all. Mini hooligans. Dude, thank you very much for joining me on this 100th episode. Congratulations to you. I'll see you next time. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having us. It's the next 100. There you go, folks. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you've heard, please like, download, subscribe, and tell all your mates to do the same. Before we go, a quick word from our friends at OmniSend, the ROI-focused email and SMS marketing platform for online merchants. Go check them out at getomnisend.com slash your basket is empty. We'll see you next time. Yeah.